0: that was growing in spiritual maturity as well as in numbers, and that's because people were getting saved every day, not because anything else was going on other than people getting saved. And we've seen that things were going well. Prayer was a priority. Evangelism was the great motivation of the early church as they followed Jesus' calling. And it's interesting because throughout the first five chapters, there's really no set structure. There's no... Uh, format they're following other than the apostles are the leaders and the church is marked by the fact that that people are dependent on the Holy Spirit over anything else now other than Ananias and Sapphira which we start saw at the start of chapter 5 all the opposition all the conflict was external and throughout that external opposition and the arrests and the beatings and the threats the Lord had been completely faithful to them Uh, He had provided for them, he had led them, and he kept them moving forward. And it's interesting, as we get to chapter 6, verse 1, that the church is is growing, not just in numbers, at this point we are assuming and and concluding that there are tens of thousands of believers, but the church is growing in terms of its depth, and Acts 6.1, which we'll read in a minute, makes it clear that the disciples were increasing in number, and that's an important word that the Holy Spirit uses several times in the passage we're going to look at this morning, because this was not just, as we see earlier, and the church added to its number daily. This was, now there were disciples that were increasing in number. So this was not just a, a, savvy, a savvy marketing plan on the, on the church's part. Uh, they weren't just drawing people that were trying to follow the next great fad and wanted to be part of something that was exciting, and there was this new trend in Jerusalem, so, so let's go see that. That wasn't what was going on. The people that were joining the church, the people that were taking part in what was happening daily within the body, were sincere in their faith, and they were actively growing in knowledge and in maturity and in obedience. And that's an important distinction, because the Holy Spirit puts that word there for a reason. He shows that there is a deepening maturity within the body. And that's really uh, what should be indicative of any church that as we go farther along, we're now a year and what three months into this 15 months into this as a church that as we go along, the number of people that are becoming real disciples of Christ should be increasing daily, right? Shouldn't just be, we stay at the same level. We're doing the church thing and everything's happy and we're stretched a little bit, but, but basically, we're just coming to church. No, as we go farther along, 15 months, 15 years, if the Lord tarries that long, we should be becoming disciples who are in love with the Lord and they're maturing in our faith and, and strong in our walk and strong in our witness. And the church should be evangelizing, increasing, because people are getting saved. So this is the call that's before us. And we see as we get to chapter 6, actually look at chapter 5, verse 42 that the ministry is effective, the apostles are committed to it deeply, and all the way through the end of chapter 5, the Holy Spirit keeps reiterating the characteristics of the early church to remind us that this is God's ideal. But from this point on, chapter 5, verse 42, to chapter 6, verse 1, things start to change. Not because God's not sufficient, not because the ministry wasn't effective enough, it changes... Because people start to think of themselves. We had seen a little uh, feeling of it to start at chapter five, but now from chapter six on, people begin to think of themselves a little bit more. And any time that happens within a church, any that happens within the body of Christ, the church is negatively impacted and the gospel is effectively hindered. People start to think selfishly. They, they start to complain they're not getting enough attention. They start to feel sorry for themselves. They, they turn the focus away from the Lord rather than the focus being trusting in the Lord. They start to think about advancing themselves rather than advancing the name of Christ. They start to think about following each other rather than following the Spirit. And from Acts 6 on, we don't see those type of descriptions that we've seen all throughout the first five chapters. Chapter 1, verse 14, and chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And chapter 4, verse 31, and chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, and chapter 5, verse 42, even the apostles, when we get to chapter 15, have a serious disagreement at an event called the Jerusalem Council, where well, they all kind of get together finally as as leaders, and they even have a disagreement about whether the Gentiles need to be circumcised. So from chapter 6 of Acts on, we start to see people now think about themselves, and it Really culminates in three churches that are that we see in the New Testament, uh, who who kind of represent uh, all the different problems that can happen within a church and all the conflict that takes place when a church isn't focusing on the Lord. The first one was Corinth. Corinth was deeply divided, and if we ever uh, come to the place of studying through 1 Corinthians, we'll see that people were selfish. And they had lost their focus on ministry and lost their focus on the Holy Spirit because there were personal agendas and ego trips and grabs for leadership and misuse of spiritual gifts. Corinth was a mess because everybody was thinking about themselves. Then you have Galatia where theologically they were on edge and and there was some kind of a a, a conflict there because the, the Jews that had gotten saved now were still kind of clinging to the law and saying, That the Gentiles who had gotten saved really needed to adhere to the letter of the law and still act upon the law in order to be authentic as Christians. And Paul has to write to them in the book of Galatians and say, that's not right, you're missing the point. You're still clinging to something that's dead. And then we know about Laodicea. Laodicea where the desire uh, was totally selfish, where people were unwilling to hold uh, to any kind of spiritual standard and walk by the word of God, or to be set apart in the way that they lived, and they were uh, selfish and fearful, and and just uh, the Lord says you're you're lukewarm, you're like tepid, you're not hot for me, and you're not cold against me, you're just kind of blah. So each of those three churches represents what happens when when the church, uh, when people in the church start to think about themselves and start to make it about themselves. Now, all those churches had problems because of lack of conviction and because they were uh, out for themselves. But the church here, Acts chapter 6, is having problems because it's being blessed by the Lord. And how many know that's the best kind of blessing to have? The best kind of problems are when God is working in your midst and we're calling out to him like we heard this morning and God is moving and working and people are getting saved and problems become because of that. The worst problems are the ones that are self-generated, ones where we become selfish, or carnal or lukewarm, or theologically confused, or where agendas happen, or where people are grabbing for power. Those are the worst things. The, The best problems are coming out of the experience where God's working. And people are opposing it, and people are frustrated, and sin is being eradicated and people are calling on the name of the Lord, that's when the enemy starts to work. Some of you are dealing with that problem right now, and that's a good thing, even though you're frustrated and you're struggling and you're wondering what's happening. These are problems that are coming out of your ongoing maturity and out of your increased passion for the Lord. And I want to encourage you this morning, keep your perspective. Don't lose heart. Don't allow yourself to be turned from what God's doing because he's shaping you and refining you. And if the enemy is opposing you because you're living for the Lord, praise God. Praise God. That's the kind of opposition Jesus said, it's coming, expect it, It's got to happen. But when you are suffering through that kind of opposition, you're blessed. And I'm honored. Now that is what's happening here. And for the early church, the first internal conflict kind of takes place here in chapter 6. Let's read the text together, starting in verse 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God, verse 7, kept on spreading. And the number of disciples, again, notice the Spirit using that word, continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Let's stop there uh, for our text for this morning. Now, the conflict we see in verses 1 and 2, is between, between two groups of people. The native Jews and people who are called the Hellenistic Jews. Now, the Hellenistic Jews were those Jews who had started to embrace the Greek culture. And they had learned the language. And they were being influenced by the great Greek writers and by the culture of Greece. And, and at this point, they're starting to become other-focused in terms of their thinking. Now, that was unthinkable for the Jews who have always and continue to be very proud of their heritage and proud of their culture, even though they're opposed by just about every country on the face of the earth. And by the way, that's not a coincidence. So the Jews that were natives are are taking pride in their culture. It's unthinkable to them that you would start to embrace another culture, but that's not where the conflict is. The conflict comes in, in a matter of thinking. But I want to say before we move on to the conflict that for us as biblical Christians in 2012, this is the fine line that we walk to be in the world and to be influencing the world for Christ, but to also be separate from it and not swayed by the appeal of sin. Now, on one hand, we can't be isolationists. We can't be cloistered to ourselves because If we're going to obey Christ and we're going to follow the commission that he gave to us and the very definitive calling to go into the world and preach, not to sit apart from the world and hope the world will somehow come to us and then we'll tell them something about God that will pique their interest and eventually they'll come to Christ. It's not how they did it in Acts. Jesus didn't sit, sit back and wait and the world will come to you. What did he say? He said, go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. Now that means that we have to form relationships, intentional relationships, with people who don't know Christ so they can see what's happened, so they can know the hope that is in us, that Christ has saved us. We're commissioned as believers to relate to people so that we can win some for Christ. On the other hand, we also have to guard our hearts and minds about being comfortable with the world because the bible says that we're aliens it says that we're strangers that we don't belong to this world that our citizenship is in heaven and that god has given us his spirit and he's given us a transformed nature and he's given us a renewed mind And we're led by the Holy Spirit. So on one hand, we have to be going into the world, evangelizing the world, building relationships with the world, telling people about the hope of the gospel, and loving them so they'll know the love of Christ. And on the other hand, we have to be guarded in our heart and mind that we're not being influenced to the place where we walk away from Christ. This is the delicate balance. And we don't know from the text if the Hellenistic Jews were being that shaped by the Greek culture. But we do know that they felt slighted. The church is meeting together to, to study and to pray and, and to fellowship and to do all the other things that they're doing together, worship together. But, but at the same time, at some point, you got to eat, right? Just like we're going to do next Sunday. We're going to eat a lot of food, so be prepared. The church gets together, they eat. So these people are getting together and and they have uh, some kind of food service. Somebody had to prepare the food. Somebody had to serve the food. There may have even been uh, some kind of an extension ministry for people that couldn't come or widows or elderly people. Maybe they they took food out to them. Whatever the case may be, the, the widows of the church, the elderly people, needed food. And the church was trying to take that responsibility upon themselves But the problem is the Hellenistic Jews, the ones that are kind of Greek in their thinking, are saying, wait a second, our widows are being ignored. You guys are slighting us. You guys are are intentionally doing something that makes us feel ignored. They did not think it was accidental or they wouldn't have brought it up. They thought that the incongruity was intentional. There There was something going on here. Now, that really could have divided the church. But the Lord can use disagreements and selfishness. Even that he can use to make ministry more effective. So God turns it. And if we turn to the Lord during those times and get wisdom from him, he will solve the problem. That's what happens. The complaint gets to the apostles. Now, the apostles at this point, we know from chapter 5, have a lot on their minds, right? They have a lot to think about. They're being opposed. They're being threatened. They've been beaten. They're still recovering from their wounds. Maybe their faces are torn up. There's a lot that's gone on. And even though they're rejoicing that they can suffer for Christ, they're still beat up. So as they're trying to do ministry and prepare and study and pray and come together and and be effective in ministering to to the body, here comes this complaint. Well, the Hellenistic Jews are saying that their widows aren't getting enough food and that we're neglecting them and there's all kinds of conflict. And the native Jews are irritated. Can you just see the frustration on the apostles' face as they're sitting there with the word of God open and they're calling on the Lord somebody comes in and says, we've got a problem. we got a problem. People are griping. All right? Bring them in. And here come the two sides. And if you ever seen an argument where everybody thinks they can talk at once, right? You know what that looks like? And you got people gesturing and waving and like this and... Ignoring each other and, and arguing amongst themselves and the apostles, I think, and I'm just speculating, this is not in the text, but but let's talk about real life. I think the apostles are just sitting there with their heads down, shaking their heads. How can it be that we're arguing about something this small? And they're knowing that they have to study and prepare because not everybody has a leather Bible in their hands. So they're pouring over the Old Testament and they're talking among themselves and reviewing what Jesus had told them for the last three years. But, but more importantly, and, that, and this is something that we tend to forget with the abundance of resources that we have. And church, we have so many resources at our disposal. If we're not studying the Bible, we're not trying because we have so many different ways we can do it. But, but the apostles didn't. And it struck me this week that they really had to pray and discern from the Holy Spirit what they should know and how they should teach the church. They had to stay close to the Lord so they could feed the people spiritually. They were far more dependent on the Holy Spirit than we are today. They had to look for wisdom and knowledge and direction from the Lord. and We don't have to do that. We've gotten lazy in that. Churches don't have prayer meetings anymore. Because we've got resources and we've got wisdom and we're clever and we figured it out, so we know what to do. Click, 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 put it on PowerPoint, this, 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 and we're ready to go. We got a slick presentation of the gospel. There was none of that next. They sat with the word, they talked among themselves, and they prayed. And they listened to the Spirit and they said, Holy Spirit, teach us. We're fishermen. We don't know what we're doing. We haven't been trained. We don't have education. Some of us don't read very well. But Lord, Jesus was with us. And you gave us your spirit. And you gave us a calling. And you'll never give us a calling that we can't fulfill because you give us power. So Lord, we're just going to call on you. Just show us what to do. Oh, wouldn't you love your life to be that simple To be that dependent on the Lord. Listen, if we're not seeking the Lord and calling out to him, then we're going to be always inclined to fall back on our own wisdom and our own strength. And that will always fail. What did we hear this morning? We heard person after person say, people prayed, God answered. People called on the Lord and God worked. What a blessing it is to be able to come together in the presence of the Lord. This is the secret to joy and contentment. The reason people don't have joy and contentment in their life as believers is because they don't abide in God's presence. Because there is no way, if you're abiding in God's presence and listening to His voice and studying His Word, that you can be lacking in joy and contentment. I'm convinced of that. The times when I'm lacking in contentment are the times when I'm not in His Word, the times when I'm lacking in joy are the times when I haven't spent time in His presence listening to His Spirit. When we start to get engulfed in ourselves and distracted with all the junk that we've got this week, we lose the joy of our salvation. That's why David went back into his presence and said, Oh, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. If nothing else, come to that prayer meeting just to spend time in the presence of the Lord for an hour and get that joy filled back up. Now, the apostles knew this. They knew that the only way their ministry would be full of power and of wisdom was if they were listening to the Holy Spirit. So when the dispute comes to them, they keep their focus on the priority of their calling. Look at it. Somehow, in this text, they gather the congregation together. Now remember, at this point, it's a multitude. There are tens of thousands of people. I don't know how they did that. But as they gather the congregation, they say two things we have to understand. First of all, The most important responsibility that we have, the 12 of us, the apostles have, is to study the word of God and to pray. Because if we're not studying and praying, the church can't be effectively ministered to. That's priority one. Priority two is the daily responsibility of the church is important. So the congregation, you, need to use your gifts to serve where there's a gap in what's getting done. This was not about the apostles not being willing to serve tables. It just wasn't what the Lord had specifically called them to to best serve the congregation. Listen, a pastor or leader in a church should never ever be unwilling to do any job that needs to be done. There is no job that's too small. This is part of the ministry. But every other person in the congregation should also have the same attitude. No one should expect that somebody else will carry out the preschool supplies or somebody else will take down the sound equipment or somebody else will take out the trash. Listen, the people that are diapering babies this morning and the people that are teaching third graders, their ministry is just as valuable as what I'm doing this morning. Because if they're not doing that, guess what we have? We have smelly, crying babies. How's that going to go? Are going to be able to focus on the Word of God this morning? You'll be able to worship the Lord and raise your hands and call on him if the baby next to you stinks and is crying. Somebody's got to do that. I was reading an article the other day about a statement that we often hear within Christianity that we need to go out and change the world. Now, the pastor who wrote it, I don't know him. He sounded a little burned out. I've been there, so I recognize it. And he's a little bit cynical, but I I think he made some really good points. And I want you to listen to part of what he said. He says, I think it's time to say goodbye to the Christian industrial complex, the evangelical hype and marketing machine that promises life change every Thursday and promises that you and I can change the world. Everybody wants to change the world. No one wants to do the dishes or take out the trash. I would trade every kid who takes a missions trip to change the world for one who will stay home and clean his room. Treat his brother like a human being. And help mom around the house without being asked twice. Changing the world's easy. The latter is harder and far more Christ-like. The same goes for adults. I don't need to become a great leader. I need to prepare a regular Bible-based sermon for Sunday. Make some phone calls to shut-ins. And be more available to my congregation. In other words, make sure you're serving with pure motives and a humble heart, even if it means serving food to widows. Now, what's fascinating about this text is the Spirit's description of the qualifications that were set out for the men who would do this work. Look back at verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Now, this is what the church now describes or refers to as deacons. The word is actually used in verse 4. It's the word ministry. The word ministry is diaconos. It's the same word. And that's what deacons do. They serve the body and they minister to the needs of people. It's a very biblical principle. Some churches don't, don't recognize that. It's described further in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But here at Harbor Rock, We do recognize it. While we know that this is not a clear blueprint on how to do it or why, and we do believe that the ministry is more effective if some people are set apart to serve. So for the last month, I have been seeking the Lord's direction about some men who can fulfill this role at this time. And I'm in the process of talking to some of them about accepting that responsibility. This is not a governing role. The Bible doesn't state that. Acts 6 doesn't clarify that. It's just men who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom and are willing to serve. And it's interesting because the number of people that they chose out of tens of thousands, they only choose seven. That's because the standards are high. And the reason that these men in this text are set apart is because they had three traits. They had a good reputation They were full of the Spirit, and they were full of wisdom. Now think about that. That was the requirement just to serve tables. That wasn't the requirement of take the leadership for the congregation and and teach and instruct the body and do discipleship and lead an evangelism team. This is just the guys who are giving food to the widows. Here, have some pita bread and some lamb and some mint. And enjoy. I know you're, you're elderly and your husband's died and, and, and we just want to serve you. Those guys that were doing that had to be having a good reputation, be full of the spirit, and be full of wisdom. There's nothing about them being good businessmen or effective communicators or having advanced degrees or, or being strong, outgoing people. In fact, the Lord's qualifications for them are far more spiritual than resume. He doesn't say, get the popular guys who are great businessmen, who know strategy, who are outgoing, who know what they're doing, who can take some leadership of this and give it some organization. He doesn't say anything about that. He says, find the people that are humble and spiritual. And when you find the people that are humble and spiritual, they're not going to mind serving tables. I'm convinced that one of the greatest failings of the American church over the last 40 to 50 years is that we have placed a greater emphasis on who someone is and what they know in establishing leaders than finding humble, godly, spirit-led people who want the presence of the Lord more than they want personal power. We have taken a a, a business-like concept and think how much the church has stopped doing Acts 6 because we've become more convinced that if you act like a business rather than a body of Christ, that it will somehow be more effective. But I can't find anywhere in Scripture where it says God will bless that. And I believe the Spirit's giving us a very strong message here in Acts 6 that the early church, where the ministry was so strong and effective and self-interest hasn't yet infiltrated the body, that the early church had a far greater attitude and a far greater value on being filled with the Spirit than anything else. And I asked myself this week, why has that changed? Why has that changed? I've fallen into it in some churches. Why has it changed? Why have we gotten away from, let's find people who are full of the Spirit, rather than people who have great qualifications? Not to mention that there's a direct correlation, look at verse 7, between the church's priorities and the spiritual integrity of those who are serving And what happens in verse 7? Because it says in verse 7 that the word kept spreading. And the number of disciples, notice the word again, the number of disciples, people who are maturing in their faith and full of uh, uh, wisdom and people who love the Lord, and people who are doing the work of mystery, the number of those people increased. And even, oh, this is fabulous, many, many priests were becoming obedient. That's like saying, And the church grew, and a bunch of Muslims were converted. A bunch of atheists came to Christ. That's how dramatic that was. There was no stopping this. But there was no way this would have happened if the church had gotten caught up in selfish thinking, and they had looked at people and said, your secular qualifications are what make us want to promote you. These seven had a good spiritual reputation even though I promise you other than reading this text you've never heard of five of them. You'll never hear of them again. We know Stephen. We'll talk about him in a minute next week. We know Philip because he's going to become an evangelist and he's going to go down in the desert and meet the Ethiopian eunuch and lead him to Christ. But other than that, you don't know the other guys and I don't either. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Who's ever heard of those guys? They're not in the rest of Scripture. And yet, out of all the multitude of people, they said, if we want somebody who is known for being full of the Spirit and wisdom, it's those guys. And the word here is very uh, descriptive. This, This is not just that they had a little bit of those attributes. The word means they were filled up and lacking nothing. And then notice Stephen, and we'll conclude. Notice that Stephen was extra full. It says in verse 5 that he was also full of faith and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives a double emphasis because they've already said these men were full of the Holy Spirit. But it says about Stephen, he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So it's it's a double emphasis there. And then it says in verse 8 that he was also full of grace and power and that he was doing miracles. Now, there are, there are two important spiritual principles, as we conclude, that come out of the fact that the Spirit highlights Stephen. One is that of all seven of these men, they stood out from the rest of the congregation in being full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, which tells us that there are people who are saved and love the Lord, listen now, who are not full of of the Spirit and of wisdom. Every believer has the Holy Spirit, but not everyone is full of the Holy Spirit. It's not that we're not saved, it's not that they're not committed to, this, to the Lord, that, that they're following the Lord, they're studying their Bible and coming to church. I'm not being critical this morning, I'm just trying to draw a distinction. There are people that are saved, have made a decision, study their Bibles, come to church, love the Lord, give whatever but they are not controlled by the Holy Spirit. They have still not yielded fully to Him. They're still holding on to some kind of sin. They're still trying to keep some semblance of control of their lives. And the Bible tells us that that's not good. Because partly full is also partly empty. So the Bible says to us, be filled with the Spirit every day. Be filled. Not being full of wisdom and spiritual discernment comes from not being filled by the Spirit because Romans 8 says that what controls you shapes your thoughts. So there's a certain order there. You're filled by the Spirit and then you're filled by wisdom. And once you're filled with the Spirit, if you still feel like, I I just don't, Lord, I don't have the discernment I want, then James 1 says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God faithfully without wavering and what does God do he will fill us with wisdom but listen I can't expect to be full of wisdom from the Lord if I'm not full of the Lord but when we call the Lord never turns away from people who want to be full of him if you go to the Lord and say God I want your spirit to fill me I want to be emptied of self. I want to get rid of all this junk that's sitting here that I refuse to let go of. Lord, I want your spirit. I want your wisdom. I want to be controlled by you. How many know that if we pray that God will always answer that prayer? God won't go, nah! I don't feel like it. But well, it sounds great. But I don't I don't think you really mean it. 2 Peter 1.3 says that he has given us everything that is pertaining to life and godliness. So listen now. We're not supposed to be lacking as disciples. And note a second that, that, that even among those who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom, there are other areas in which we may be known for being full, like faith and power. How, how, listen, how are we going to effectively reach people for Christ? and be laborers in the field that are ready for the harvest if we're not full of the Lord. We need more people to pray, more people to serve, more people to care, more people to minister, more people to visit the hospital. People are full of life and hope and confidence and power. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members have problems, and they need definitive answers. And they need to know that there is someone who is known for their wisdom and someone that is known for their faith and someone who is full of the Spirit. I guarantee you, you go to work tomorrow and you're full of the Lord and you're full of wisdom and you're prayed up and you've been spending time with the Lord that people aren't just going to talk casually to you. And you start to ask them a question or two and they're going to open up. What's going on in your life? Not just, how you doing? Good, how you doing? Good, yeah, see ya, see ya lunch. What you having? Subway, good, all right. How's it going? Anything I can pray for you about? You won't believe how many people start to open up. Yeah, it's Just I don't, I don't want to bother you with it. No, really, it's okay. What's going on? Ah, I got this thing going on. Well, listen, I believe in the power of prayer. I'll pray for you. People are looking for answers. So the question is, what are you and I known for? Not just that we go to church or that we believe in God. A lot of people believe in God. Eighty percent of the people in this country say, I believe in God. What God? Another question. But they believe in God. Which God do we serve? We serve Jesus Christ. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. So are you and I distinguished by being full of the Spirit or are we distinguished by being more full of the things of the world? Do you and I have godly wisdom or are we known for making decisions that show lack of spiritual discernment? Is your reputation strong and respected do people know that you have standards of holy living? That you won't cross into that worldliness that, that doesn't set us apart from anything else? Do people know that there's a line for you? Do they know that your witness is unembarrassed? Or, 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 or do they not see very much love for the Lord? Are you not very zealous? Is your faith shaky? Are you discontented? Chronically unhappy? A little depressed? Unsure, not, not confident, not hopeful? Or are you just so full of joy? I mean, I'm not talking weird, giddy stuff. I'm talking, you're just content. I love that word, Philippians 4.11. I've learned to be content in all things. That's the peace of God. In your life. See, what we're known for gives a really good indication of what's going on inside our hearts and minds and how closely we're walking with the Lord. His spirit will only fill what is empty of self what's prepared to be filled with his holiness and once that happens I'm done once that happens we're like Stephen every area exudes the presence of the Lord Timon Nicholas all those guys were, were special but then there's Stephen he's full of faith full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit and full of power Study more next week, but I want you to know right now that, that everything about him was Christ. In fact, if you look and study ahead in the next section, it says that people were bothered by him because he wouldn't stop talking about Christ. And even his face, his countenance, evidenced heaven. It was like an angel. I'm going to ask you are you under that measure of control? Holy Spirit this morning? Are you full of wisdom? Are you deep in your faith? Is your witness powerful? Are you hungry for God? Are you saying, God, oh, use me the way you use them? Let's close our eyes for a minute. Parker, just continue to play. I want to just appeal to you this morning. I've been challenged by this text myself. Are you full of the Spirit? Are you full of wisdom? Listen, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about titles and positions this morning because I don't want you to miss the point. This is not about structure and organization. This is spiritual. These men were chosen to serve because they were full of the Spirit. I don't know you this morning as well as I want to. I don't know what's going on in your heart. You can hide it even if I did. But I am convinced that between you and the Lord this morning, you need to ask yourself the question, am I full of the Spirit? God is more than willing because he indwells you, he's more than willing to fill you to overflowing. Maybe there's junk there. Maybe there's stuff that, that his holiness is not going to fill because it's dirty. Maybe there's just sin this morning that you just will not let go of. Gossip, pornography, lust. is just not in love with the Lord enough to give those things up. God will remove those from you. He'll even remove the desire from you this morning if you take it to Him. I want to encourage you right where you sit this morning to be honest with the Lord, This is serious stuff. This is not just, well, that's another nice sermon and we can go home and do whatever we want. The Lord is challenging us. The Spirit is calling to us and saying, how are you going to live? The opportunity that we have to evangelize, the opportunity that we have to impact lives so that disciples are being added daily is so tremendous. That's going to require sacrifice in our hearts. It's going to require us living A certain way. So I want to encourage you. I don't usually do this, I feel led to do it this morning. I want to encourage you if you're if you're saying to the Lord this morning, Lord, I want to be more full of your spirit, I want to be completely full of your spirit, I want you to just get up and come and stand at the altar. This is not a show, if nobody comes, it's fine. It's going to be challenging, and you may think I'm going to be embarrassed. Listen, this is just between you and the Lord. Nobody's looking around. I'm not even looking around. But Lord, I, this has got to be different now. It's got to be different. I want to be known for being full of your spirit. I want to be known for godly wisdom. Not for my glory. These men weren't about their glory but so that I can honor you and I can serve you and that people will come to Christ because of that. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit. Fill me full. Get rid of the junk. Get rid of the garbage. Remove all that stuff that I've been clinging to that's had a hold on me. Get rid of it. I don't want it anymore. Lord, when the enemy starts to come and tempt me and say, you really want that? Convict me hard. Father, you see these children, these disciples who are standing before you, who this morning are declaring, Lord, fill me. Fill me with your spirit. Father, I ask for them, and I ask for myself right now, that you would empty us and cleanse us, and that every single day as we wake up with mercies that you have prepared for us during the night, That every single day you would fill us fresh and that we would stay full to overflowing as we fill ourselves with your word and fill ourselves with prayer and fill ourselves with fellowship and fill ourselves with worship as we do the work of ministry, Lord. That you would fill us. Partially full is unacceptable. Lord, I pray this morning, right now, this is an definitive morning, that you would do a fresh work in our midst. That you would give us a hunger for your presence. Lord, that when we come together and pray in two weeks that this room would be full. That we would abide with you. We cannot possibly imagine how great and wonderful and faithful you are. It is beyond our comprehension. But Lord, give us a taste of that every day, an understanding of how merciful and wonderful you are. And Lord, I pray you would use my brothers and sisters, both those that are standing and those that are sitting this morning, that you would use each and every one of us in powerful ways for your glory. I pray you would use this church in powerful ways for your glory. Lord, whatever that means, however you want to use us, wherever you want us to be, building, no building, large, small, it doesn't matter. We just want to be effective for you. We want to see disciples added daily. And Lord, increase our love, increase our maturity so that we can be effective. Father, move in our midst, we pray. We thank you and praise you that when we call, you answer. We thank you and praise you that your spirit is willing to fill us. I can't imagine that, Lord, that you're willing to do this. Lord, we pray. a moment with the Lord right now. You and Him. We're not in any hurry. We have nowhere to be other than here.